Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Uh, good morning, uh, podcast listeners. This is uh, Rob Sagan, the managing partner of Thrive Partnership Group. We're pleased to be joined today by John Morose, who's our business owner and proprietor at More Rose's award-winning honey, I must add, the uh, grand champion of the, uh, I'm going to get this name wrong, John, you're going to have to correct me. I know my wife goes to the, is it the Ontario Winter Fair or Canada Winter Fair, but it's the big fair in Toronto they have every year at the. Yeah, the Royal Winter Fair. The Royal Winter Fair, it's royal. Right, let me get it right. The Royal Winter Fair. You guys were grand champions last year with your infamous honey, of which I'm well stocked for the Christmas period. Thank you very much. Excited about that. But uh, yeah, so John, let's let's start a little bit about telling telling our listeners why, after a interesting corporate career, which we're going to talk about in the aggregate business, you decided about what six seven years ago to get into the honey making business on your property up in in. Uh, on the, on the end of Rice Lake. So what's that all about? Well, first I'd like to thank you, Rob, for inviting me to be a guest on your, your podcast. Uh, it's a real honor and uh, uh, I hope I can uh, do a good job today. Uh, the, the beekeeping, um, I chose to retire a bit early in my career. And, and uh, uh, as a, uh, when I was growing up in high school, late high school years, uh, we, um, as a hobby, we got uh, some beef cows, and we ended up with near near to a hundred uh, beef cows. And I loved that. And I I, uh, I t- t- told, talked to my father, and I said uh, that when I was done high school, I said that I don't think I want to go to university. I want to uh, run the farm. And he said, uh, you know, you can always come back and run the farm, but you've really got one chance now to go off to university and check it out. And even if you don't like it. And after a year determined that you don't want to continue, you can always come back and run the farm. I went off to school and I enjoyed university and had a wonderful career. Uh, and then uh, it was kind of getting old what I was doing and, and uh, decided I needed to try something different. And I got beekeeping is really very much like farming. You've got uh, animals, you've got the animal hus- husbandry piece. You've got the, the crops that you're always looking into for what the bees have to for nourishment and and uh, uh, so it uh, kind of matched, and it's a different type of farming than the beef cattle for sure. But uh, I kind of got my uh, early childhood dream, maybe, is coming back and becoming a beekeeper. So we've yeah, got about were, you were a patient man, John, to um, hang in there and apply your craft in the engineering field for a number of years before having a chance to come back and dig into this passion that was sitting there maybe dormant for a few, a few decades, but yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Now you're up in Hastings, which if our listeners don't know, is just a beautiful little town on the very edge of Rice Lake, um, up here at Peterborough and your property's got a really nice view of the whole area. And uh, now that's a family uh, legacy, right? Yeah. Actually where we built our house here uh, is actually a piece of the farm that we had as a child, so uh, or a teenager, I guess. Uh, so this is actually built on this piece of land we've owned since 1978. So uh, you know, you kind of the world kind of goes around a circle, I guess. I guess, 
Now, you mentioned in high school, you really got a taste for agricultural life. In, in 78, was it, is it true that your, you and your folks, your family moved back up from the States? I think your dad was a prophet at Penn State, wasn't he? Yeah, he uh, actually started the environmental engineering program. So um, we, when I was, I think, in grade three, we moved down to uh, State College, which is a little town right adjoining Penn State. And uh, uh, we moved down there and came back. He, he got uh, very ill and was told he had to stop working at 49, I think it was. And uh, we moved back, and that's when we actually started the farming. And as it turned out, he ended up having a uh, a great career after that and, and uh, uh, became healthy and he's over 85 when he passed away. So, wow. um, so your high school would have been, been split between uh, the first few years in Pennsylvania and the last couple of years up here in Hastings. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Um, it was, and it was a bit difficult to moving in. Uh, so I went, finished grade 12 and 13 here. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, it was a bit, there's a tough age to move and, and maybe why I kind of fell in love with the farm. It was easier to fall in love with that than it was maybe in high school at that age. So you were old enough to watch your dad uh, go through that challenging time and have some understanding and maybe some perspective on it. So your dad, from what I recall hearing from you and your wife, Linda, John was quite well known. Like he had a very high profile position there and had even been asked to, make some contributions to the American government. So when that illness challenge struck your family, John, what was your perspective on it as a teenager? What did, what, what kind of take did you have on it uh, with your dad? Did he talk about it? Did you know what was going on and what were your reflections on it at the time? Uh, it was, a, it was a really, really tough, tough time. He was at uh, probably the pinnacle of his career. Uh, he was on uh, uh presidential committee to clean up the great lakes he was on uh, a bunch of boards uh uh he was doing consulting he was uh his career at penn state uh and environmental engineering had was really peaking and and uh so it was it was a it was devastating for him um he was in canada at the time uh so my mother actually came up and spent uh, the next several months with him and i think i was 16 and and uh uh, my younger brother and I had to continue school in the U.S. and, and uh, uh, we actually did that as kids. And but it was it was it was tough. Um, it was tough watching my dad. Uh, it, there was, it took a couple of years before he regained his strength, and uh, and it was devastating for him because I don't think he ever uh, got back to the, um, the, the where he was uh, uh, before he got ill. And it, the, I guess the learning you asked, Rob, is, uh, uh, you know, I saw it happen to him. And, and perhaps one of the reasons I retired, I retired when I was 56. Uh, perhaps one of the reasons they're not retired, but I shifted into beekeeping. Maybe one of the reasons I did that is because uh, you, ne- you never know when, and uh, uh, what's going to happen. And, and uh, uh, I was healthy, financially stable, and, and uh, it was a great time to move on and try my hand at something else. Yeah, and for your for your pops, it must have been quite the difficult transition because to have his career really, as you say, he, he couldn't have been at a more productive time in his life. <clears throat> to suddenly have to, well, I have no choice really to uh, 
make a transition, come back up, even switch where he was living, where you guys were going to high school, come back to a small town in Ontario, which I know he was comfortable with because there's some family history here. But what did he do those first few years as he recovered his health, John? And then what did he do afterwards once you guys, once he did recover his health? Yeah, there's probably a learning there too, uh, something that stayed with me and, and uh, it, in the uh, arms of adversity, um, I saw him, he needed to quit smoking, uh, quit drinking, he needed to lose weight. Uh, and pack, when you package all those things uh, together and try to do them all in one time, each, each one in its own is, can be difficult, but when you package them all together and, and you know, I saw him go out uh, long, long walks uh, every morning. Uh, I don't think he ever smoked it again after that. Uh, he dumped a bunch of weight. Um, uh, it was years before he uh, took, a, took a sip of alcohol again. Um, and, and watching him uh, make those changes in that level of commitment that he needed to do probably uh, stuck with me for my uh probably for my life that uh, when you uh in in the uh, you know the arms of adversity sometimes you just need to uh uh bite off and do the very very difficult things that uh, uh are tough to do under normal circumstances and sure and we know lots of people i'm sure that have had major health scare <laughs> a notice if you will from the powers that be that don't respond like that that slough it off maybe they're good boys and girls for a short period of time and do some things, but it must have been somewhat though to see your dad go all in realizing that he couldn't go back or if he did, he was putting himself and his family at risk and to come all the way back up and reestablish the family up here in Hastings and um, start to kind of start a life all over again. Like, like, like almost saying, Oh, that's done. I have no choice, but to do something pretty drastic. Must have been somewhat impressive to see him go all in and then have a nice long run till his eighties, eh, John? And and yeah, absolutely, Rob. The uh, um, the run to till his eighties, the uh, and to see him make those changes and uh, stick with them for his uh, the rest of his life, um, it was it is it, it was very impressive. Did he? What did he do for work in the in the you know from his fifties till he stopped working? Uh, he uh, was an adjunct professor at uh, the U of T, uh, and then there was a consulting firm in uh, Toronto that he was uh, tied into, even as a professor in Penn State. And he went and worked there uh, for a number of years, and then he joined Ontario Hydro. And it was uh, uh, as an environmental engineer, he he led a group doing uh, modeling of uh, gases emitted from the uh, the coal-fired power stations, and uh, did a lot of research in in conjunction with the U of T uh, on on that uh, on air pollution uh, from the power plants. So while he was able to stay at the at the sort of leading edge of now what's become a huge industry, and thank goodness, right? Um, but yeah, it must have been well. It must have been rewarding for you and for your family and especially for your dad to have that on the other side of that challenge to think that he wasn't done because he could have very easily been done. You know, John, it could have been, 
either mentally or physically just debilitating. And there would have been you and your brother and your mom trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? But, uh, oh, well, that's, that's a pivot. Your dad had to handle the curveball there on the inside corner. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, John, what was the contrast? I'm curious about this because I have some other friends I know and some business colleagues who split their educational time between countries. And here you were mid, mid high school, leaving a U.S. campus in Pennsylvania, coming back up to Ontario. What did you find was the contrast between those two environments for you? Yeah, it it was difficult for me, and and uh, um, it was the time when I started drinking a little bit. Uh, it was a time when uh, you know the friendships are very important, uh, and so I came from a university high school uh, to a, a country high school, and and uh, I found the uh, I was in grade I was going into grade twelve, and they only had grade twelve in the U.S. and and. Uh, and I saw I had to do 12 and 13 when I came to uh, Ontario. And so I struggled with that some, um, you know, I started drinking a little bit and experimenting with that, which, you know, probably normal for uh, a teenager. Uh, and my, actually my marks uh, at, at, in high school, I was, a, a had great marks when I was in the U S and I came and I kind of let, let, the, let things go a little bit in Ontario Um and at the end of grade 13, I was fortunate enough that I got into uh, uh, university and, and uh, uh, like uh, the rest of the kids in university, their marks went down. It was strange because when I got in, my marks actually went up significantly. So, And you went to uh, a but, tough academic program by any standards, but definitely by Canadian standards. That Queen's engineering program is, is extremely challenging. A lot of the kids that I went to high school with up in Deep River ended up in the engineering program at Queens because many of their parents were in the science field around the nuclear plant and Kingston was reasonably close, but had a great reputation. So it must've been interesting for you, John, to get in there as we all adjusted to university campus life. You're trying to figure out, do I have what it takes to compete with, you know, some of the smartest kids from this whole area and I'm going to make it. And you must've been interesting for you to get to that first Thanksgiving, the first set of exams and realize, yeah, I'm, I could do all right at this. I actually did better than I did in high school. And I thought, mm, hmm, interesting. <laughs> um, so it was kind of neat to, uh, you know, I gained a little bit of confidence maybe that when I put the pedal to the metal, I, I actually could do it. And I saw that. So it was, uh, that was pretty rewarding. And that's probably why I continued uh, as well, because I was originally going to go and have a bit of a party for a year and then come back and farm. So it, it was interesting. So it grabbed you, John, is what you're saying. Yeah, I was I was hooked. Um, the farming thing. We came home and I helped out on weekends and stuff, but it kind of uh, drifted into the background. Um, and uh, the the mining engineer, as a mining engineer, that that, that career was uh, at the, at the forefront, I guess, of my interest. And why mining, John? Of all the things you're being introduced to in that first year or two at Queens, which I know they cover every aspect. Um, well, first of all, when did you have to choose a focal area and why mining of all things? Because it's quite a, it's a broad field and you had everything at your disposal in Kingston there. So what grabbed you about mining? You know, I, um, I'm, I'm an outdoorsy uh, person. I like the heavy equipment uh, in the uh, farming. 
I loved working with the heavy equipment, uh, the outdoors piece. Um, uh, and I think those things grab me. And, and with the mining, of course, uh, you know, you've got, it's more, a um, the heavy industry, uh, that I, that appealed to me than, than some of the other engine engineering. Did you get some work experience away from the farm during your undergraduate program, John, or were you pretty committed to coming back and helping your dad and your mom and your brother keep the farm going? No, the mining, the mining program was pretty good. I, I, uh, I worked underground up in Elliott Lake, uh, for two summers, I think as a, as a student. And then I worked for, a, I had a summer up in uh, an extended summer, actually up in uh, the Yukon, uh, at an open pit lead zinc mine. And, uh, they, I, I, you know, the more I saw of it, the more I enjoyed it. Uh, it was very good. And, and the, the summer jobs in the mining industry paid very, very well. So I was yeah. very fortunate that way too. Yeah. I had a couple of buddies that did that and, uh, they came back with some interesting stories. So if you've got a good story from those three years of being a young buck up there working with those hardened men in the pits. Well, the, the most colorful is probably the, uh, a lot of the underground, uh, guys were, uh, uh, French Canadians and, and, uh, uh, the most colorful I think was the conversations and, and the, the little, the little jokes about, uh, nailing, we had metal lunch boxes that you go up and down the cage with and, and, uh, uh, to see them either nailed to the lunch table or bolted to the lunch table or a bunch of other things. The French Canadians, I think were probably the, uh, uh, I, I had a, a great laugh at, uh, uh, the, the jokes they pull and the, uh, uh, uh things they do with each other. Uh, and it is, it is the rough underground mining is, a. You know, it is tough on on uh, people and stuff, and and the camaraderie and the uh, 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 the joking that they would do actually lightened things and uh, made it a, a a great experience. Was there any kind of rite of passage for you, young guys that were coming off campuses and getting some work experience? Uh, not really. Uh, they play some jokes on you in the uh, in the change room because you're soaking wet your clothing and your boots and everything are, are soaking wet. So they'd uh, often play the odd little joke on you in the, the change room and stuff. Once they, once you were there for a couple of weeks, they, they, uh, they're very hospitable and great, great people to work with. But it is a tough life for those guys, right? To be in the mines and the pits and up in the North. What did you observe while you're up there, John? Was it something that you took with you as you went through your career, having had a chance to, be on the line, so to speak, with with the men that later on became part of the organizations you work for. Was that helpful to you? Yeah, the safety piece was probably one of the biggest uh, uh, things I'd seen. Uh, we had a there was a double fatality where uh, the roof came down on top of two people, and then I was in. Uh, we were uh, operating sprinklers uh, in remote, very remote, mined out areas, and I was by myself one day and and. Uh, so when you turn off, your, you have a light on your, your helmet. And when you turn that light off, uh, you've never experienced pitch black like it would be down there. Like there's no light anywhere. And I was um, walking along and one of the pillars uh, burst not too far from me. And I jumped back and my light went off my helmet and the light turned out. Um, and it so it was just like the first of all, you the 
you know, the rock kind of exploded in a sense. Uh, and th just that concern about, and then not to be able to get your light working or thinking that you might not, you do have a spare bulb. So you turn the, the little knob another way and, and that the second filament will come on. And, and uh, so it, luckily enough that that will work, but otherwise I probably would have just sat there until uh, someone came to, to get me, but the, it is, it was a spooky, uh, so safety, I think, uh, uh, was drilled into me. Uh, Jeez, you're lucky you didn't become claustrophobic, John. I just can't imagine how much that would have scared the bejeepers out of me. <laughs> For a few seconds, I, I was, <laughs> I was, yeah, it would be the claustrophobia. <laughs> it felt like that, that you just, you're just darkness like you've never seen. But, uh, wow. Well, I can imagine you spent a few extra minutes on the beach if it was warm up there at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sit under the sun here for a few extra minutes. Enjoy this. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's that must have been very formative, John. So you were able to really thrive in that undergraduate program. And was it right away that you decided to specialize in masters, or did you go work for a little bit and then come back to that idea? Yeah, I graduated in uh, the early mid '80s. Um, and the year before I graduated, I would have gotten uh, six or eight job offers. Uh, things were that good in the mining industry. And then things collapsed so fast that when I did graduate, um, uh, I, you wouldn't even get responses from companies. Uh, so there was absolutely nothing to, to go to. So I ended up, I thought, you know, rather than going out and just uh, trying to find something to fill the time, I... I uh, applied to do a master's and I, I uh, was fortunate enough to, to get engaged with a, he was the prior head of the mining department, uh, Alan Bauer. He was a, uh, probably one of my greatest mentors. Um, and he uh, uh, was a world renowned explosives expert and, and uh, uh, both mostly commercial mining, but some uh, uh, military stuff too. And, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a touch like my father in a way. Uh, so I, I uh, got in under his wing. Uh, and that was my first uh, formal job, I guess, as a mining engineer. I worked for his consulting company for a number of years. That's while you were doing your master's. Is that right? Yes, I'd done the coursework portion. I was writing my thesis and stuff. And, and he called me one day when I was working for him. And he said, you know, John a lot of people do the coursework piece and never finish their thesis, never get their degree. A lot of people, he said, don't be one of them. So he kind of, kind of shoved me back to work. I had to go. Yeah. Did, did you find it hard to lean in and get that thesis completed? I seem to recall there was a bit of a speed bump there and it might have affected the relationship between you and him. If I recall correctly, right. Can you shed a little light on that? I actually started working uh, or my master's uh, in mine ventilation. And uh, um, uh, the professor I had, uh, you, you do a presentation similar to a thesis defense with the other professors and your other grad students. Uh, and I was doing that uh, with, and my advisor was there. And my advisor actually uh, in front of the group kind of ripped me up and, and, uh, uh, told me I was wrong and that I was talking about a perpetual motion machine and come to his office and he'd give me a book to uh, they would sh show me the way, I guess. And, and uh, 
I had been taking a thermodynamics course and, and uh, uh, I recognized that what was in the book was incorrect. Um, but he taught to the book. And uh, so there was a difference of opinion there. And, and in the end, um, one of the other professors said, John, you're, you're in a tough spot here. Um, you might prove him wrong, but you've lost his confidence. Uh, you need to figure out another avenue. And probably a couple of days after that, uh, Alan Bauer, the explosives uh, expert, uh, called me in and he said, uh, why don't you come uh, do your thesis under me and uh, come work for me at my consulting firm. So wow. I was very, 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 very fortunate. So you could have been caught up or you were at least somewhat caught up in a pickle between the the uh, professors and the and the educational debate, so to speak. Yeah, it was really tough because um, uh, it, it, you know, it robbed my confidence, obviously. And, and uh, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a t difficult way going forward for me for a bit. And uh, um, until, you know, I kind of got I kind of had to accept that I wasn't going to do my thesis and mind ventilation that I'd done a lot of work on. And I needed to shift gears and go find it and do it with uh, the other professor. But he was really, really good. He uh, held my hand through a bunch of it and uh, probably one of my heroes. Well, and as it turned out, hey, John, it probably served you quite well. Was it something that you were able to leverage immediately in your career? In, in fact, it was. the. Uh, um, I worked for him for three years uh, uh, with his consulting firm and I really enjoyed it. Uh, he was a very, very dynamic uh, individual, uh, took me on a bunch of trips with him, uh, kind of sent me on a bunch of trips of my own, uh, kind of got my legs. I think I got my legs underneath the working legs underneath me there. And, and uh, uh, I was very fortunate to have him hold my hand. And then he uh, mid fifties uh, passed away in his sleep one night. So, um, and he was really the dynamo behind the consulting company I was with. So. I parted company there and, and uh, uh, went to work at 3M. And I think the experiences I had um, w working with him and the knowledge I'd gained on the explosives helped me start the career at, uh, uh, we made roofing granules at 3M. So it was a, it was a, a quarry with, uh, that we worked at. And I think the knowledge I gained um, actually helped me uh, get in and get set there and do a pretty good job. Now, that first gig with 3M on the corporate side of your life, and away from the consulting that you started in, where was that based, John? Uh, it's actually Havelock. Um, they had a, a quarry. far from where you are now. Very close. We actually lived in, and we lived uh, not very far from where our house was built here. Uh, and our kids were, our two girls were both uh, uh, born when we lived here. Um, and so it was a uh, quarry and we made roofing granules. It's the little stones on top of asphalt shingles. Yeah. Uh, and we, so we mine them, crush them down to the right size, wash them, clean them up. And, and then uh, we put a, on the color on the roofing granules comes, uh, it's a, almost a ceramic coating that we put on them. Um, and I was uh, started out as a process engineer there. And, uh, how long did you stay back up in the Hastings Havelock area, John? Just a couple of years before they asked you to take on other responsibility? Did you stay with 3M for a while? Uh, I stayed here for, uh, I think it was six years. Um, and I got responsibility. I was in process engineering and quality control. And I had some supervisory 
responsibility in the quarry. But um, I really wanted to be a, a, a full-time supervisor and get into that that type of uh, career. And they really pushed me on the, we need engineers, we need engineers. And, and uh, But my it, it, it heart was set on the um, supervisory piece. And, and uh, uh, I actually got offers or semi-offers, I guess, from two of our U.S. roofing granule plants. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the the boss I had uh, he, here was uh, uh, said, well, you can take them, but it'll be six months. And so the offers quickly disappeared. And I kind of got a little disgruntled and uh, decided that uh, I was going to go be a supervisor somewhere. So I left and, and uh, after six years and joined Tomeco Metals up in the Ottawa Valley. Now, that's interesting, John, because I had a, I have a couple of siblings that, like you, uh, were gifted on the science and math side. And actually, one of my sisters would have been in her undergraduate at the same time as you. She was at Waterloo, ended up in geology, came out into the same market, you know, with the 20% interest rates and <laughs> no jobs. And because she finished the top of her class, uh, like you, she was able to get some work, but she had to go out west to Alberta and work for Suncor. So it was a bit of a challenging time to get started. But, and my other brother, ended up in the he started at waterloo in engineering ended up as a technical person a mechanical maintainer after doing a college program and he ended up with the nuclear industry but both of them um came to people leadership later in their careers much later actually both quite enjoyed it but at the time i remember some conversations around especially with my brother not wanting to get away from the tools and the work he really enjoyed and he didn't run towards being a people manager. It kind of came to him reluctantly. I mean, at the end, I think he had 20 some direct reports and it was just incredibly difficult. But for you, John, you sensed that almost right away, uh, you know, in your late twenties, early thirties with a young family that you wanted to lead and manage people. What do you think the draw was? Cause that wasn't your dad's journey. I mean, he was a professor, right. And a consultant, but what was that for you? Uh, probably the practical piece um, the applied piece is probably more important to me than the, the theoretical um, research uh, piece. I could do both, but uh, uh, I got more working with the people. Uh, I gave, just gave me more internal reward, I guess, than, than, uh, than doing the research piece. Uh, and as it turned out, I did okay with it too. Um, when I went to the Ottawa Valley, first plant I had was uh, we were making strontium metal, which is a, a very reactive metal, uh, and it's used very high purity. Uh, is used in uh, white metal casting, so aluminum transmission cases for Ford be sold a lot there. And, and uh, um, so, and I super we had about I think there was twenty people, uh, and then at our sister plant down the road. Uh, is where the HR support came from, the finance support and the other uh, support pieces. So I was in there as a plant manager, very much to my own. My my boss was down the road, uh, 30 or 40 miles, um, very much my own in a plant in Westmeath, just outside of Pembroke. Uh, yeah. And we did, I really loved it. Um, loved working with the people. Finally, was the supervisor, the manager that I wanted to be. Uh, and we doubled the throughput of most of the different lines we had within the plant. So 
uh, had a ton of fun. And it was my first chance, I think, to watch how infectious it can be when you get everybody lined up, uh, pulling in the same direction and just how much you can accomplish when uh, you, you get people, everybody's uh, pulling the same way. Uh, you get rid of all the uh, riff, the, the, the noise beneath, very clear uh, goals and objectives and stuff. And, and uh, uh, it was really neat to see everybody put that plant together and, and uh, uh, over, over that. I stayed there for about two years, I think it was. Well, it sounds like you really derived a lot of personal fulfillment out of that uh, experience of seeing how powerful the we was compared to the me. Because, you know, we all come out with lots of, well, my dad used to call it piss and vinegar, you know, a lot of energy and uh, enthusiasm about our knowledge coming out of campus and maybe a little bit of work experience. We're all fired up. And at some point, this come across that notion of, well, the we's bigger than the me, and they're to be derived from that. And there's a lot of lessons in that team and collaboration and people leadership piece in and of itself. It's like another master's education, but on the job for most people. And almost everybody on our podcast series, John, I know you've listened to a couple of them, have reflected on the steep learning curve that they experienced on the people side. What I'm hearing from you is that your first taste of it was quite positive. Oh, I, I, I just, uh, it was fantastic. You know, I hear you talk uh, when, when we talk or when we speak with other people, I hear you talk of uh, the culture and the strength of that culture. If you can actually put it together the right way. And, and uh, uh, it was, uh, it actually gave me the confidence that uh, I can pull the team together and make it happen. And it was, uh, it was a phenomenal experience. How did you and Linda enjoy living up on the Ottawa River in that Petawawa Pembroke area, it's an, an, I would say, one of the most unknown little jewels of Canada. Having grown up up there, I know a lot of us uh, feel that way. We get back up there from time to time, and it's just so gorgeous along that Ottawa River. And the, I love the not only the physical layout of the valley, but the people remind me of like Atlantic Canadians or Albertans, or they're just so down to earth and. Did you guys enjoy your time up there, both professionally and personally? We just loved it. Um, and it wasn't just me. Uh, we liked the outdoors. Uh, our kids were in, involved. They had a little ski hill. Uh, they had tons of winter stuff going. Uh, I remember that the, uh, we, we lived closer to Petawawa than Pembroke, and Petawawa is a, a military base. And I never really knew military people until. Uh, I got up there and I, they invited us in on the base to do everything to their parties. They were the most hospitable people uh, that you could ever want to meet. And uh, I remember the, uh, the family across the road, he was a uh, captain uh, helicopter pilot. And uh, I remember him at two or three o'clock in the morning, they went out and did night exercise and, and to tell his wife that he'd be home in about an hour, he'd come and drop this helicopter. It was one of those noisy ones. Uh, dropped it down over top of their house and of course woke everybody in the neighborhood up. Uh, but I remember our kids were probably six or seven or eight and uh, maybe nine. And he came home with a pair of night vision uh, glasses that were at that time, I think they were 40,000 bucks or something. And he let the kids wear them 
picking up these glow tubes that you couldn't see with the naked eye, but you could see them with a thing, and they're throwing them into the woods, and here the kids are running through the woods with $40,000 headpieces on. But they were the most hospitable. Uh, they're the greatest people that uh, we just, we actually loved it. If, if there was another, I, I went to the other plant up there and uh, we had a lot of safety issues and, and I didn't stay very long after that. But if there was another job in the Ottawa Valley for me, uh, we would not have, we, we would have stayed there. We just loved yeah. it. The, the people were fantastic. Like you say, they're like the East Coasters, just very, very open and, and uh, uh, sincere people. We had the same experience in Western New York. We lived just outside of Buffalo for a couple of years. Christine and I would have stayed there a lot longer if there was more economic opportunity. We found the same thing. Uh, probably our favorite neighborhood and community and just remarkable. In fact, it helped us develop a theory that the worse the weather, the better the people. Because we had lived in Southern California. Some of the people there were strange. And then we lived in upstate New York and... I remember being on a flight. There was another guy that was, uh, he was making the opposite move. He was going from the Northeast back down to California. And he's sitting beside me and he's going, you know, you're moving to Buffalo in November, right? <laughs> you seem pretty happy about it. <laughs> because no our place first, can get more snow. Oh, because our first experiences were so positive. Everybody we met was just awesome. Like our real estate agent. Even the people we'd go to try to buy their houses would were very extraordinarily welcoming and hospitable, and everybody treated you like their best friend. It was just we felt so lucky to have like you know we some people thought we needed our heads red, but uh, we felt so fortunate to live there and reluctantly moved out because of just not not much opportunity for me. So I'm not surprised you felt the same way about well as they call it the valley. Um, there's some characters up there and there's some long, deep history that's fun to get to know, but tell me a little bit about, it must've been somewhat disruptive or something must've really taken you aback for you not to be able to continue there. Was there something you learned from the adversity at that other plant that you reflect on now, John? Yeah, it was a larger plant. Uh, I think we had 180 hourly, uh, and uh, and I had a, a bunch of uh, other intermediate staff there as well. So it was a growth role for me. But uh, uh, we had a, a fatality and we had a, a uh, uh, we seriously maimed a, a young, a very bright young man that uh, would have impacted him for his life. And, and uh, it was an old wartime plant and the, uh, uh, the powers that be weren't willing to put enough uh, capital investment into the plant to bring it up to this, today's standards. And, and uh, so I saw that safe. Uh, I was loud and clear that I didn't personally, I didn't want to participate in, in it anymore. So I started looking for, for alternative work. Yeah. Well, that's got to rock you as a young man, right? You had to live through the experience, as you were saying, during your undergrad years up in the mines to be there when there's a couple of fatalities and then to have a fatality at your plant when you're in the management role, whew, that must've been difficult to bring home with you, John. Yeah. I, I still, uh, the, both phone calls were probably at two in the morning or around that time. And, and, uh, I, every time a, a phone rings, uh, late at night, uh, I, I still cringe from it because, uh, it, it is that rough. You go and see the families of the person that uh, has passed and, and uh, 
you, you definitely feel a responsibility that, uh, you know, they're under your care or under your watch. Uh, they lost a, a loved one. Wow. Wow. So then you, you pretty much, you Linda had to come to the conclusion that you had to move to keep moving your careers forward. I know she was in nursing up there and quite enjoyed her role because she covered a lot of geography, got to meet all those great people up there. Um, so now how did you make the decision to end up back in Southern Ontario and what was the reason to, to land where you did for both of you? Yeah, I got a, uh, I found a role as a quarry manager, a plant manager in Acton at a, a quarry with, had about a hundred hourly people and, and, uh, the staff people go along with it and, uh, very fortunate to do that. Um, uh, and I, I quickly, I started there and with probably within, uh, six months, I was the Eastern area manager. So I had about 10 plants, uh, between Acton and Ottawa. Uh, and then about six months or a year after that, I became the director of operations. So then we had about 20 plants from, I guess, from London to Ottawa, uh, some of them four, per, four person plants since, you know, the one was a hundred person plant. Uh, uh, and so I, uh, grew in that role quite quickly, uh, did fairly well, uh, started, a, an executive MBA at that point in time. And then, uh, the company was sold, uh, to an, another firm. Uh, and so it was chopped into bits, ended up getting chopped into bits for a competition. Uh, reasons uh, they couldn't take it all so they chopped a piece off and I went with the piece that had been chopped off and, and uh, I stayed for about uh, uh, about six or nine months finished my MBA uh, and at that time the my boss was uh, kind of looking over my shoulder and for some reason didn't really he didn't really trust the previous group and so I guess he I automatically got thrown into the not to be trusted group. And, and, uh, and so I decided to, I, I change a control agreement. Um, and so I exercised that agreement and I had always dreamt of, uh, running Tim Hortons or uh, Canadian tire. And, and, uh, I researched the Tim Hortons in a lot of detail and, and found that it wasn't really for me. Uh, and then I went and worked for, I volunteered at a Canadian tire and, one of their most profitable Canadian tires in, in Burlington. Um, and uh, the owner kind of took me under his wing. I worked there for about four months and everybody was telling me, John, that's not who you are. And I said, well, you don't know who I, <laughs> I know who I am. You don't. And after about four or five months of doing that, I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's not me. So I, uh, I went uh, out look, looking for work again and, and uh, joined uh, Chevron Texaco when I was their lubricants operations manager for uh, uh, for Canada. So we had plants from Delta, BC, out, out, uh, out Vancouver Way and uh, all the way through to uh, Quebec City. But, you know, as much as it was a topsy-turvy move from the Valley to that new company, it's clear that it gave you that sort of uh, leverage point in your career, John, because they saw something in you, you would, you know, plus you probably to some extent were the right guy at the right time and were able to take advantage of a nice wave of opportunity, but you've got a couple of quick bumps there to a point where you're now leading leaders and you got a lot of responsibility financially, as well as from a people point of view, it was 
quite a jump up in a couple of years' time. And I know it kind of went sideways there through that acquisition period, but you must look back on it now as a bit of a turning point in your career, right? Because it really put you up at that executive level rather quickly. Robert, it really did. It, uh, you know, I, I listened to you talk and coach people and this, the discussions we've had and, and uh, you know, your uh, talk around culture um, and look for people's strengths, team building and all those things. And, you know, I kind of learned that, I think, when I was up at Tomenko Metals up in the Ottawa Valley and I came down and I actually applied, you know, a similar set of skills uh, uh, and with blue circle aggregates. And, and uh, you know, it, it really showed me the power. If you apply uh, th- those, those skills or those, uh, those learnings, it really showed me the strength of, uh, they're very, very powerful and they, they're infectious and they get uh, uh, people, tremendous amount of buy-in. So uh, the, the, I probably for the rest of my career uh, recognized the power of, of uh, culture and the right culture. Yeah, and it's a perfect example of, I know that you and I both enjoyed with our Friday morning leadership group reading that book uh, about the two uh, leadership curves that uh, have been observed, the fluid intelligence as well as the, what do they call the second one, crystallized intelligence. So that second curve opportunities, a lot of people miss that in their career and they stay in their lane of subject matter expertise. And, you know, I know lots of people who, did that and had a good run, but at some point you, you lose a little bit of that edge because, I, and it's, it's, it's not easy for everybody to make that jump, but you lose a little bit of that edge for continuous growth and, and more responsibility and more challenge. If you, if you miss the opportunity, you don't create the opportunity for that second curve to kick in. And I love that explanation of the two growth curves. I think you also enjoyed that book. Do you, now when you look back on it, John, I think that's probably, you were living a case study, weren't you, of, well, you're, you were paid to be an expert in mining engineering, and you sure, sure squeezed that lemon, got a lot of juice out of it, but going from the opportunity in the Ottawa Valley to this opportunity, I think that's when you jump to that second curve, right? It, it really is. And then uh, uh, after I was with the lubricants group for only probably nine months, um, uh, did it ton of traveling um and uh, i got a call from what had been a previous manager with the blue circle uh i had a call from him he came back from england and was the uh, president of the materials group uh where i where i left and he said would you come back and uh i think under his understanding i'd be under his uh wing and and uh I did go back and, and I think that's exactly when I went to that, uh, the, you know, the crystallized uh, piece that uh, I went back and uh, as the vice president of the aggregate group and, and uh, for Ontario and, and uh, uh, applied those things. And we, we grew the company from a $3 million EBITDA uh, up to $25 million EBITDA in about six years. Wow. Uh, we did uh, in six years. We probably did six acquisitions and, and uh, uh, built a uh, what uh, globally our company was a global company, and globally we were recognized in our, in our aggregate group for uh, the uh, ability to put uh, some dollars on the bottom line. 
Yeah, and the nice thing about that field and aggregates was it was an area where Canadian-owned companies could compete at the global level. Um, as you know, I was in the life science sector, and there's not much of a domestic life science industry in Canada. Our best and brightest end up having to go international just if they want to continue to have a run towards those executive type roles with the full PL, the financial, the merger acquisition opportunity, sitting there making those corporate global decisions can't much be done if you stay in life science in Canada, unfortunately. But in aggregate, it was probably great. Hey, John, you got to continue to live here. You, Linda, got to continue to raise your girls in Canada and yet have these uh, executive global challenges and full PLs and acquisitions. And you must have been like a kid in a candy store. It was a, a ton of fun, uh, and we, we did well in Ontario, um, and it was getting a bit, <clears throat> excuse me, just about the time it was getting a little bit tiring, the, uh, uh, they gave me responsibility for all North America as a president of Eggers for North America, and, and uh, uh, so then I had uh, our Chicago group was uh, losing money, and we went down there, and I think in the first full year, we operated it, and we put together the team. I, I think I learned how to build teams uh, and the power of the teams even more when we did the acquisitions because you buy, uh, when you do an acquisition, you, you get, you know, you've got another complete culture and you need to be careful when you integrate that, that you don't just put your stamp and tell them to change. You need to understand their culture, take the best from their culture and integrate it into yours. And at the same time, you need to make uh transfer so that you have a, a uh, you know, a collective culture across all your groups. And, and uh, we went down to Chicago. I was, uh, I think for a year, I would jump a plane at six in the morning. I could get to the office down there because you gain an hour going that way. I could get to the office by eight. Uh, and uh, you should return on Thursday night. Uh, and we flipped a, a losing uh, proposition around the first full year to, a, I think we made six million or something even in the first year. Uh, so let's it was. Uh, about, let's just talk about that case study, if you will, John, because many of our listeners uh, will find themselves or have recently found themselves, I'm sure, coming out of the COVID disruption, a lot of turbulence, right, in the labor market, the great resignation of some 30% of North American workers churned a lot of people around, and folks found themselves responsible for new businesses, new teams. And I often get the question, and actually that's how we get pulled into a lot of our client relationships, is helping new leaders adapt to whole new places of work with new cultures, new challenges. Often they're brought in for a turnaround. It's that you're not going to shake things up if things are going great. So, so often a new leader will find themselves inheriting a little bit of a mess to be turned around. What would you share with our listeners that you believe is the secret to a successful turnaround? Because you did it several times. It wasn't just a fluke. So what did you learn to do, John, through all those years of your successful corporate life? And I want to remind our listeners that you ended up running St. Mary's Cement. So you ended up going even further than this. But just in that example from Chicago, a couple of other turnarounds that you already had, right? No, I just just ran the aggregate group for North America. Uh, Yeah. The cement operations were... Uh, separate from that yeah but that aggregate group john probably employed what thousands of people in north america right no uh, there's probably 400 maybe okay pretty big footprint though and 
as you said, very diverse locations, different cultures. You also went to uh, South America for part of that responsibility, right? Yeah, we, uh, uh, so turning, you, you were asking about uh, the, Turn, the turnaround piece. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I look at that and, and uh, I think I would say big ears. Um, listen, big, listen, big listen. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, if you listen uh, to people, um, they often have the solutions are often there to most issues, but we don't listen to it or it doesn't get brought to the right level. And uh, the management team that was down uh, didn't listen. Um, and uh, the part of changing them that that team up um, was a part of uh, uh, the solution. And then um, I had a phenomenal team in Ontario and uh, uh, down in uh, uh, Florida. And by bringing them in uh, and with, you know, listening uh, to what the issues were, uh, we quickly uh, put together the strategic plan of what we needed to do. And then we, you know, we would go and, and uh, monthly we would sit with a, a very large group of people um, so it wasn't just with the senior team. It was um, uh, most of the managers or supervisors pulled them in on a monthly basis, uh, looked at where we were, measured ourselves to the that, that plan. And, and uh, um, you know, if areas we were getting off track, we brought it back on track. Uh, and then um, we also believed in celebration uh, as, you know, celebrate your successes because Oftentimes, we once you get a success, it's quickly uh, forgotten about, and so we uh, we a lot tremendous amount of celebration of our successes. Well, you and, probably um, saw a few of your mentors and more senior managers around you take different approaches to their people challenges, their opportunities for turnaround. And I'm sure John, you had the same experience as me. Some of them didn't follow that recipe; they came in like the bull in the china shops, you know kicking and firing people and throwing things around and being very disruptive and being the boss um, almost mean spirited in a way kind of show that they were tough and they're going to make things happen and put everybody on notice and a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety amongst the workforce. When those things happen, you took the opposite approach and it worked. What, what could you share with our listeners that you believe beyond the listening and the discipline why does that opposite approach give better returns in the long term because i know that the fear piece works for a short period of time because people straighten up pretty quickly if they've not been pulling their weight but it doesn't seem to have the same sustainability the same long-term legs because it becomes all about that person and their limitations and they sooner 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 or later the organization does run into the limitations of that fear-mongering boss your approach in my observation and i'm not the only one that sees this obviously the books have been written about it tends to have more sustainability more long-term benefit so beyond the listening and the discipline john what else did you bring to that approach yeah i think i think the probably one of the biggest paces was um i don't like to have to do very much I wouldn't say I'm a lazy person, but I don't like doing it all. And if you engage people 
get them to be part of the team, set the direction so they know where they need to go. Um, it's it's amazing how they, most people have the same motivations in life. They want to be, they want to contribute. They want to be successful. They want to be seen as part of the team. Uh, if if you can get those pieces going, uh, it's almost like a steamroller. It just keeps going, and then uh, it allows me to pull back. Um, so get the ball rolling, and then hand it off to people. Um, and it surprised you how effective uh, or how level when they're involved in putting the plan together. It's it's surprising how uh, committed they are to actually making it happen. Um, so I, I think it would. Sorry, Joe, it really goes back to that basic management principle that I'm sure you were uh, introduced to in your MBA when you took your MBA. I know I saw it in my undergrad. The old theory X or theory Y school of management, theory X being fear-based, you know, listen to me. Like I was just talking about those examples of the heavy-handed leaders that come in and start throwing their weight around. And they're, they're, it pivots on this notion that they believe people essentially don't want to work, are interested in being successful, and are just lazy sods that need to be, you know, uh, straightened out. And then the theory why management pivoted on the notion that actually people do want to come to work and make an impact and have fun and be successful. And you certainly seem to subscribe to the second one, and it worked, John. Yeah, I do. The uh, um, yeah, it was. You know, the, the the last couple of years before I retired, um, things were actually going uh, so smooth uh, that I could really withdraw and uh, concentrate on other uh, things in life and, and uh, uh, different things, I guess, from management. Uh, I, I got my thrill at the end of my career, late in the career. I got my thrill out of uh, actually seeing uh, people uh, happy with uh, their contribution and, and very proud of what they were doing. And it wasn't, it wasn't me that was doing it. It was like the ship was running because they were doing it and they were doing it on their own. It was, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal thing to sit back and watch. Yeah. And I remember some book I read along the way had a very powerful depiction of that leadership journey from being the horse that was pulling the cart while everybody sat and enjoyed the ride, you were doing all the darn work. And I'm sure you experienced some of that along the way in your career too, where you just had to get in and straighten things out and get the momentum started. And a lot of people I have spent time with doing what I do now will say, Hey, I came into a mess and somebody just had to get things moving. So I was out there pulling the cart and everybody else seemed to be enjoying the ride. And then at some point, people go, Oh, this, Maybe I should get involved. Maybe I should help this guy. And it's shoulder to shoulder. And there's progress from that because now it's everybody's energy pulling together. And it's very rewarding. And it sounds like you had a couple of those experiences. Well, more than a couple. But then ultimately in your career, John, to be able to move back to you being at the top of the stage coach, so to speak, that third level of leadership. That's when I think leaders really have made it and have proven to themselves and to the organization, the people around them that They've, they've got it figured out. And when you can sit up on the stagecoach and guide the, the, the crew to pull and, uh, and enjoy the ride, have the horses pulling it and having fun, seeing them flourish, just making sure you keep them between the ditches from time to time, celebrating, as you say, uh, paying attention to the culture, you know, feeding them the straw and the water, so to speak, to continue the analogy. Like I, 
I get to spend time with folks who get to that pinnacle of leadership where they're either at the top of the stage coach enjoying the ride or someone described the other day as the orchestra conductor that nobody even sees, but is there really making sure the fluidity in the music is at its peak. It should be fun and easy, right? It shouldn't continue to be a grind when you've mastered something. And in this case, people leadership. And that certainly seemed to be your experience too, John, towards the end, right? You really arrived as a people leader at that point. Yeah, you're, you're bang on the, uh, um, the, well, you've become that a, almost a different person. Uh, you, you get a, a non-arrogant confidence uh, in, in being able to uh, lead people and, and uh, it, the feeling you're, uh, the internal reward you get from when you reach that is, is uh, absolutely tremendous, just like you're, you're talking about. And I don't think it's a different than the classic learning model that has been so well described. You know, the first stage is you're unconsciously incompetent as a leader. You get your first people responsibilities and something usually pretty quickly smacks you in the face. And whether it's you have a very difficult personnel issue to deal with or in your case, up in the mining business, you know, to have a fatality at work, something like that would just immediately grabs your attention. You go, oh, my goodness, this is this is obtuse. I've got to figure out what the heck I'm doing here because the stakes are pretty high. Something usually gets our attention when we wander into the field of people management and we at least get the first base, which is that conscious incompetence. OK, now I, I know I don't know what I'm doing, and so I better pay attention and start to learn. And then, you, you, like you certainly saw in, in your journey, the repetition, having the courage to put yourself out there, having good mentors, it's a little bit like learning to drive a car. Like I remember watching, you know, my youngest son learn to drive when he was 16 and came down at, I think, the day after he turned 16, asking for the keys to my Lexus. I said, I don't think so. You know, like you're not even consciously incompetent. You think you can drive. This will be fun. Uh, and I realized, and so did he very quickly, that for for his benefit and mine and societies, we should get him a person that knew how to teach. So he took the young drivers and went out with his mom's beat up old vehicle and actually learned to drive with some confidence and ability. But that stage of going from conscious incompetence to conscious competence or second base is really a challenging stage because everything's new. Everything's a steep learning curve. It's a grind. But then when you get there and you have got some some confidence, then if you keep going and you fully embrace that second curve of learning, you eventually arrive at what we see in these kinds of long, steep learning curves, whether it's a language we're learning or let's say a musical instrument or learning to drive a car. At some point, you're so competent at it, you're unconsciously competent. And it's, you know, people go, what does that mean? Well, Think about driving. If you've been driving a car for many years, you can enjoy a podcast and drive the car quite safely, right? It's your conscious mind is perhaps doing the driving or, or, or listening to the podcast and your unconscious mind is driving the car quite safely. Yes, yes, yes. And that's exactly, John, when you described the pinnacle of your career, I, I bet you you were in that zone, right? Some people call it the, the, the flow or the zone where you don't have to think about it. It's become second nature. And you can really then, while you're doing it, have fun and sort of play with things. You know, they used to say that about Gretzky and hockey or 
someone who's really gifted at their particular thing is that they were at a different level of consciousness while they were doing it. The game slowed down. Uh, they used to say about Gretzky, he could see where the puck was going. Well, yeah, because he was so gifted at everything, his mind could allow him to do that. He wasn't worrying about finishing his check or making a pass. He could do that in his sleep. So it's really cool, John, when you look at it. That's probably what happened with you is you got into that zone of unconscious and unconscious competence as a leader. And that's why that last few years was so much fun for you. It really is the, the, the case. And then uh, uh, the, the company I worked for, uh, didn't, didn't, the, the Brazil wasn't a, uh, uh, our company was uh, uh, headquartered out of Brazil. And, and uh, uh, Brazil was in a, you know, tough financial straits. Um, and they didn't want to continue to invest very much. Uh, in fact, they wanted money sent back to Brazil uh, to help out down there. And at, at that point in time, I thought, you know what, what you've done, you love the growth. Uh, you've done what you can. And, and uh, I decided to become a beekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a few friends and I were talking about uh, the sporting world the other day in our hockey dressing room. And how much admiration we had for athletes that go out on top and that don't try to squeeze the limit all the way to the end and kind of embarrass themselves in the last few years of their career, but they really just hang them up when they're at the pinnacle and you look at them and go, you know, good on you to go out on top and not allow the, the journey down the curve to be a reality because that's hard to go through. It's not fun and it's not fun to watch for other people. So that comes to mind. So, John, good on you. Not a lot of people, no matter what their vocation, whether it's sports, business, or community, or not-for-profit, are, I suppose, fortunate enough, but also conscious enough to go, you know, why would I burden myself with any kind of plateauing or even decline in the environment for me as a leader? I'm going to go out while I'm on top here and course i know you were you know you know john you felt blessed to be able to do that and then pivot and go back to maybe that first love of farming and in this case uh the beef farming so that must have been kind of fun like you must have been almost giddy i can just imagine when you and linda were back up on the property and it sort of came to you or you realized yeah i can just do this i i don't have to ask permission i've got the financial resources to do this and why the heck not let's 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 do this and let's have fun with the notion of uh, a gentleman farmer with bees. <laughs> I could just imagine you must have had a big smile on your face when that really became clear in your mind. Was is that? Am I imagining that, John, or was that the case? No, I had. Uh, uh, I guess in the last couple of years of uh, work, I'd had a lot of time to sit back and try to figure out what I wanted to do uh, with the rest of my life and. and uh, um, finally, I was able to uh, hang up my skates and, and uh, go up and do that. Uh, and it was an absolute thrill to get into the, the bee business. That, uh, uh, and it's kind of turned into, it's morphing into something probably more than uh, what we, what I want it to be or what Linda and I want it to be. Um, because it's actually getting, we're actually becoming reasonably successful at it. And um, uh, I'm not sure at this stage in our life that, uh, uh, we want to be getting into something where we're working them out. We are with it. So, uh, but it, it, it has been a, a, a absolute thrill. The first couple of years were about the animal husbandry piece and keeping the bees alive. 
And then now we're into the, you know, that marketing piece where we're trying to, uh, we're making more honey than what we uh, have a plan for. And, and uh, the marketing piece is, is a tremendous amount of fun because we get to, we have a little honey stand right on our, uh, right at our front door. And, and uh, it's just an absolute thrill to have meet all the people coming in and uh, listen to the people rave about uh, how good your product is and stuff. It's uh, just been an absolute thrill. Yeah, and I have to say that the Moro's Chili Honey may be the best product I've ever tasted in my life. Like, it's right up there with a buddy of mine used to make blueberry sausage. It was called Hallelujah Organics. Chris Matthews was his name. We've lost Chris, unfortunately. But he had. there's a couple products that stand out in my mind that I think that's a brilliant idea and very well executed. I put your chili honey on just about everything. I'm like that. What's that Tabasco sauce ad with the old lady? I put this on everything. <laughs> That's me with my chicken wings last night. It's it's incredible. So yeah, you're really onto something there. But what would you say is your biggest joy and fulfillment in that line of work, John? I know there's still some parts of it that, like any other endeavor, you have to grind through. You know, I know that the production and the physical labor of it is no small feat and as you get a little older i know that that's something you have to just manage but what's the biggest joy you and the, you and linda and the family derive from owning and operating uh moreau's honey uh probably maybe the family engagement piece uh my one daughter's uh has uh had, had a one of our a grandchild or a child uh, and so she's got some free time and, and uh, uh, she, she, her expertise is in the public relations field and, and to watching her come and, and uh, uh, prepare or merchandise or, or uh, present our products and stuff. Uh, she's, she's always pushing me. I'm not pushing her. And, and so it's actually kind of a blast to have her, Linda and I kind of, uh, uh, answering her back and call to we need to do this that we need to do, we're entered in this fair we're going to do this we'll do that and stuff so it's probably the, the family engagement our son-in-law helps me with the bees and then we've got a we hired a, a young fellow to help out uh uh last 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 summer and and uh, uh getting him i'd love to uh uh get someone uh trained in the whole uh, aspect of beekeeping and and kind of pass it pass it along at some point in time. And I'm not sure if he's the the one or not, but uh, to to get other people engaged in the business and then uh, uh, to listen to the customers is just a it's a um, it's a it's an a real thrill because it's a maybe a bit of a luxury in their life sometimes, particularly with financial uh, conditions where people are a bit tight for money and stuff. And this is a luxury that they seem to continue to want to buy. So. Uh, both yeah, the family piece is a thrill and, and uh, the customer piece we get, we're thrilled with. Yeah. And it's uh, gotta be fun to think about. This could go to a third generation now that uh, you're enjoying having grandchildren with Jack and, uh, and Rosie, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, he, so Jack's got his mom buys him a bunch of a lot of his clothing and his toys and stuff are, are somehow be related and stuff. And so he, he's only two and he's buzzing around the house all the time. Well, there's perhaps the future CEO of more roses, honey, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that he has already showed an affinity for big, big equipment, like his grandpa liking the big equipment and mining, he seems to gravitate towards that from what I've seen. So Hang in there, John. <laughs> Little Jack could be the next CEO of Moros. <laughs> Hopefully. 
John, I really thoroughly enjoyed catching up with you this morning. And as we do with every guest, was there anything that you thought, well, we should talk about this and we haven't? Is there anything that you uh, would like to share with our listeners? Uh, not really. The, uh, the Maybe the one piece that uh, our industry was not, the aggregate industry is not, there's not, not a lot of females in our industry. And, and uh, uh, I think one of the successes um, of, uh, I guess, my management style or the culture we put together, uh, I think 30% probably of our senior team, even though the uh, frontline workers, we had very few females because they don't want to get into that type of work. Um, we have very few applicants. But uh, of our senior team, I think we had probably 30% where were uh, females and and I think they brought an aspect to our culture that uh, strictly the I, I saw a lot of uh, in our industry there's a lot of uh, the male piece and and uh, I think by uh, having you know a good percentage of our senior team being female I think added a tremendous amount to our uh, uh, the strength of our culture I believe yeah I'm so glad you mentioned that because. I was at the back of the hall at a conference recently in my industry science and sitting with three or four folks, a couple female leaders and a couple of uh, my male buddies. And we actually had that exact conversation about the life science industry in Canada that finally you're seeing a good representative sample of both female and male leadership in corporate Canada. Probably, I would say it's getting close to 50-50, which took so long. I mean, 10 years ago, I was at that same conference having the opposite conversation that, you know, what's wrong with the dynamics in here? You've got more than half the graduates in Canada from medical schools are female. And yet we didn't see corporate Canada having that same representation. Now it does. And it's made a very positive, tremendous impact. It's complementary energy and skills and mindsets that I think are, you get the best of both worlds in that case. And then the other thing, of course, is the diversity of not just female and male, but diversity of cultural backgrounds and other orientations, right? That's starting to be something that I'm so happy to see. And I think that's something that Canada is actually a, a leader on in my travels, because I travel, as you did, John, outside of Canada quite a bit. And I think it's one of the gifts we have here, one of the blessings and luxuries we have is that we do have a very diverse cultural foundation in Canada. It's uh, Yes, we're a very urban country. I think 70% of our population lives in 10 cities, but that urbanness causes us to have to figure out how to live together in, in more compressed spaces. And we're not perfect at it by any stretch, but we're better at it than most jurisdictions. And it's not just societally, but I think I also see it quite a bit in my work travels that in Canadian boardrooms, as much as anywhere else in the world, in fact, even more, you see the diversity of backgrounds and perspectives. And yes, it's still got a long way to go. And it's always in our news that we can do better. But, you know, at least we're conscious of it. And maybe in, in a funny way, just thinking back to what you and I were just talking about, we're in that conscious, competent stage in terms of using all the diverse talents that are available to us in our resource pool of human resources. And we're not quite unconsciously competent at it. We haven't got it figured out, but it's nice to see us moving along the curve. And uh, so it's nice to end on a very positive note, John, in our conversation, because I do think that that's uh, something I'm quite optimistic about. And I'm sure you see the same thing on the aggregate business. I'm optimistic that it'll continue to 
move forward in life sciences and other sectors that I serve. So glad you brought. Oh, ab- absolutely. Our, our multiculturalism will uh, it'll be a Canadian strength uh, going forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, thanks again, John. I really enjoyed our conversation, and yeah, I uh, I got to tell you that I uh, I'm one of the benefactors of the fruits of your labor and your latest passion. Uh, it's a tr- something to be very proud of for you and your family. It's a it's a world class product, and it's right here in Hastings, Ontario, which is great. So, thanks again for putting your talent and energy and your community behind making you know, that honey, more roses, honey, it's fantastic. And it's been a big contributor to uh, the joy of the community up, up your way. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and I think you deserve all the awards from the Royal winter fair and other places that you and your family get to. So thanks again for that. And we'll, we'll talk soon. You bet Robin. Uh, thank you uh, for allowing me to be part of your podcast at thrive at 20. You're welcome. We'll talk soon, John. Take care. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye.